Hello, my name is John Hartley, and on behalf of the Committee on Ministerial Care, welcome to our quarterly webinar. Our topic today is Caring for the Pastor's Heart, and my guest is Craig Troxell. Craig is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he currently serves as the Robert G. Dendalk Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He has written and spoken widely, and he is a member of the OPC's Committee on Christian Education. His book, With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires, and Will Toward Christ, was published by Crossway in 2020 and will be a jumping off point for much of our discussion today. Craig, welcome. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. It is very good. Now, Craig, I want to start with a kind of high-level question. How important is the heart to the pastoral ministry? It's of first importance. <laughs> it's a great commandment to love God with all of our heart. <clears throat> applies to our church members how much more to a pastor. Mm. And, it's, and as you know, it would be hard to conceive of pursuing the ministry without pursuing it with, with all that you are and all that you have in Christ. Uh, John Flavel said, what have you given to God if you have not given to him your heart? You've, you've really not, you've not given to him your best. Mm -hmm. And so I think of that in the same line of thought in the ministry. I, I can't imagine a pastor not devoting the best of his thought life, um, the foremost of his desires, and, and really uh, resolving to sacrifice himself uh, for the sake of Christ and his people. Mm-hmm. Well, you know ministers, having been one, and currently a minister, and you know uh, that ministers are very good at monitoring what they are doing and evaluating what they have done and inventorying that which wasn't done well. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we tend to focus on our doing. Um, it's not so easy then to monitor our heart. Why is a pastor afraid to look at his heart? I think, first of all, because it's very difficult. You know, this is what Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it. So it's, it's an intimidating task, and a minister in the ministry becomes more and more acquainted with his heart. Probably, ministers start out quite optimistic about their ability, the success that they will see, the abundant fruit that will come from their ministry. Mm -hmm. As they become better acquainted with um, the sinfulness of human nature, and especially their own, it, it, it's sobering and quite discouraging. So, And then just simply to try to understand, you know, what are my motives in this and what am I seeking? Um, I think it makes it, it makes it hard. But I like the, uh, the, the selection of the word afraid. And I think that if we're to key on that word, why would a minister be afraid to understand his heart, to search his heart? It's because he, he knows what's there. Mm. He knows what he'll find. And it's difficult to face those things. Of course, this is what we're training our people to do, to turn to Christ and repentance and faith. And his grace is more than sufficient for any sin that we've committed, especially if we repented for it. But for a minister, this is difficult, and especially if we're trying to encourage a culture of transparency with other leaders in the church, this is a risky game for him to play because it, 
his fear is that the more honest he is about what's lurking in his heart, the things he's struggling with, things he's battling, he's fearful that his brothers perhaps will not be as understanding. And may, he may not find the grace that, that he's been speaking of or preaching. And so his concern, will there be sufficient encouragement and support yeah. if I'm that open a, about these things? But I would say this. I, I would say the reward for a minister that is honest about self-examination, that this is a necessary qualification uh, to becoming a compassionate shepherd. This is the very thing that enables him to, to speak with empathy understanding and patience uh, with the members of his church. And it also, I think, is what makes him more skillful. Mm. I was uh, speaking to a man on Sunday who's about to be ordained as a, as a deacon. And he's in the trades. And we were talking about things and the parallels between the ministry and the trades, working with your hands. He says, in the trades, he says, we have this saying, you are what you've seen. Like the composite of your giftedness and skill is the things that you've tackled, the things you've done with your own hands. Mm -hmm. oh, this is so true for a, for a minister. Mm. And our people increasingly get the sense that we really, really do understand what they're walking through, mm -hmm. what they're dealing with. Sometimes why it's hard to forgive yourself, why it's hard to forgive others. So all this is, is wrapped around um, the heart. And then last of all, this is what enables you, I think, to, to preach grace. A grace that, that you sense you more desperately need than any person you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard. It's a difficult task to, to inventory the heart and, and, to, and to face what's really there. But it's absolutely necessary if we're going to be compassionate and, and skillful uh, shepherds and dispensers of the grace of, of, of God in Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, if I were to give a prescription for a pastor to overcome his fear of looking into his heart, I would recommend your book. So now that I've stolen that from you as your answer, what other prescriptions might you give to a minister to, to overcome the fear and how to, how to proceed? Well, I would encourage him to turn to the book, mm -hmm. <laughs> to the word of God, which is living and active. Um, which is, which is able to, to diagnose these things mm -hmm. properly and understand how our fear, is it, is it godly? Is it a fear of man? Um, is it a love for applause? Are we more invested in image, you know, what we're projecting or our true self? Uh, and so the Bible is, is helpful that way. You know, it's that two-edged sword, but it's also a salve. Yeah. And to make sure that we're reading the Bible as Christians— and uh, reading it with uh, the second personal pronoun in, in view, that this is to you, mm -hmm. and, and that God is speaking to you. As ministers, sometimes we fall into that professionalism that, that Spurgeon talked about. We read it for them. That we're reading it in preparation for a sermon or a talk. Oh, this would be a great verse to use. And No, you have to read it first and foremost for yourself and, and let it do its work. And that's both those things, is to convict you of your sin, but also to remind you uh, that, that God's love is unending and is sufficient for ministers as well, that these, these very great and precious promises are for us mm -hmm. as well, not to lose sight of that. Yeah. Now, as a pastor, if I'm really focused on what I am doing and what I haven't done, it's likely I'll look at the congregation the same way, what they need to do and what they haven't done, mm -hmm. 
how do I get away from that to, to stir up their and my affections for Christ in the heart? I think, I think uh, one quote of John Owens I remember uh, is that, you know, as you are dispensing food, you're trying to nurture your flock. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, a minister is always sampling it for himself. He says, how else will you not know that you're dispensing poison? Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes obvious in our, in our ministry, whether we have, whether the sermon is coming through us, you know, whether we've really uh, meditated and prayed um, and, and worried, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. over this text, and that we're, we're getting a sense of what this is going to cost our people mm-hmm. and how it's going to land. And, and a good sensitive pastor knows this. He feels these things. Like, and he's even thinking and concerned for members of his church that he knows where this is going to really hit hard. Mm-hmm. He's concerned about how to be misunderstood. And, and so you take pains to make sure that um, you're, you're dispensing it properly. But I think, you know, on a week-to-week basis, um, what, a, what a minister is doing is he is aiming for the heart. And if he's not, I, my question would be, what are you aiming for? Mm-hmm. Or what are you aiming at? Mm-hmm. And I think that you're kind of leading them pedagogically in a number of things. On a week-by-week basis, a minister is teaching pedagogically how, to, how people should read their Bible. Your, your method of interpretation, hermeneutics, mm-hmm. is on display. And you're teaching them, this is how we read the Bible. Mm-hmm. But you're also teaching them, this is how we apply the Bible. And you're teaching them uh, essentially a healthy uh, method for, for self-examination where, where two things are, I think are distinctive of Christian meditation as opposed to just introspection. And, and I think that biblical self-examination means we always have a guide as opposed to no guardrails introspection where I'm just, my mind's going everywhere and I allow every thought. And self-examination is biblical. My guide is scripture. That the Holy Spirit, using Scripture, is guiding me, showing me the guardrails, saying, we can't think this, this would be unbiblical, we can't think this, this would be unhealthy. And Scripture is guiding me, leading me by the Holy Spirit into further and further submission to the Lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is I have a goal. Introspection, I'm I'm just going down endlessly into this pit that leads to despair and discouragement where I'm just thinking of myself. The goal in biblical self-examination is, is conformity to Christ in his death and resurrection with the ultimate view of renewal in the image of God and seeking things for the good of the people I serve and for the glory of God. Maybe that's a, that's a mouthful mm-hmm. in there, but, there, but there's a real goal mm-hmm. in view where I'm putting to death sin, yes, but I'm also seeking to fan the flame the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a helpful way of of thinking of self-examination. Well, I'm doing that in the pulpit. As I preach this text, it's showing us and exposing us, revealing us to be what we are and where we are. But it's also showing us who we are in Christ, what's available to us through the Son of God and through his atoning death and resurrection. And and you're doing that week after week. And and that's why when people sit underneath a grace-laden ministry like that, and if you ask them, what do you enjoy most you know, about worship or the ministry of church, they probably have a hard time putting a finger on it. But they have a sense that they're becoming better and better acquainted with themselves Sunday by Sunday, but also becoming better and better acquainted with Christ. Mm-hmm. And that this, this love of a Father, uh, this grace of the Son, the comfort of the Spirit, 
they really are sufficient. They really will carry them through this life and across the River Jordan, that there's nothing else they need, that their life is hidden in Christ at the right hand of majesty. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's how I would, I would see that. And I think that a minister who is practicing this in private, um, who's, who's putting himself uh, through this, it inevitably sort of spills out in, into his sermons, mm-hmm. but also into his instruction, into his discipleship. And then, of course, you can just teach it in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it's, it's that kind of inculcation, even in this intangible way, uh, that we're showing people the, the way forward. Thank you. Let's talk about the passions of the heart. Uh, over the past few years, we have seen political and cultural passions intensify all around us, within us. There's a strong instinct, I think, in the minister's heart to affirm these passions in the flock. And how does the pastor guard his heart from that instinct to rush to affirm cultural and political passions? Thanks for a non-controversial question. (laughs) But you're right. I mean, I I think the last couple of years have been revealing they revealed so many things. And I think as individual Christians, I, I think it's been revealing of our, of our loyalties and where a sense of loyalty is. What is it that provoked these deep passions as you, as you put them? And which in, in scripture, it's an interesting, you know, there's interesting word groups here mm-hmm. because passion sometimes can be very negative, sinful passions, but desires in general is, 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 a, is a neutral idea and it depends upon the context to understand, is this a good desire or a bad desire? And I think, I th- personally, I think the biblical answer is, is not to avoid passions, not to avoid desires, but to inflame them towards righteous ends so that the more noble, more principled, more beautiful uh, passions are those things that, that rule over or, uh, as it were, extinguish or overcome mm-hmm. uh, less honorable passions. Mm -hmm. I think that the other side of this question, if if I understand the question properly, is that I think there's a quote a friend of mine has. He says, why is it that we feel like we're getting nothing done when we're praying? So there's a real drive towards action, getting stuff done, visible, tangible stuff. Mm. And the draw of politics and cultural engagement is that this is the real work of the kingdom because I can see tangible fruit that comes from it. And certainly, we want to encourage our individual members to be involved, to be salt and light. This is a call of Christ upon every Christian in their different arenas of life to be salt and light. Mm -hmm. But we serve a kingdom that is utterly unlike any other kingdom. And this work is propagated by a means that the world considers foolish, namely preaching. Mm -hmm. A message that it considers to be weak, the -hmm. preaching of the cross. And through means that that would strike the world as absurd, namely getting on your knees and speaking to somebody that nobody can see. And yet, this is is where the principal part of our work is carried forward. Christ says that we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest for those that go into the harvest fields. They're ready. And so, in other words, he's saying, for that work of the kingdom to go forward, there must be prayer. Mm -hmm. There must be prayer. The preaching of the gospel, this is ordinarily the way that Christ is, is building his kingdom 
with such strength and such fortitude that Satan cannot withstand the encroachment of the kingdom of light upon darkness. But we're, but we're committed to a different program and, and you know, political action, cultural engagement is very, very appealing. But when Christ begins the greatest sermon ever been preached, he starts with the Beatitudes and begins to describe people. He's not, it's not law, he's not telling them what to do, he's telling them who they are. But he's listing, you know, traits, character traits, qualities like meekness, uh, mourning over sin, uh, peacemaking, uh, pursuing uh, uh, through purity of heart. He's, he's describing people that are utterly unlike the world. And he's kind of, as it were, filling out what he says to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is how the kingdom advances. It's, it's through seeing your spiritual impoverishment. It's, it's through this meekness. It's through mm-hmm. being pure of heart and being a peacemaker. It means suffering for the sake of righteousness, being salt and light. Uh, this is how the kingdom advances. And, and that's not appealing to people that want to see action, fruit. I need to see tangibles. What are the outcomes? Mm-hmm. And this is so intangible. Mm-hmm. And yet this is how this, this kingdom, which started with 12 disciples, is now over 2 billion. Mm-hmm. 2 billion professing Christians. And so many on every continent. It's amazing. But this is how we've, this is how we've done it. Well, your answer to that question on passions just confirms to us, doesn't it, how important sound theology is to the heart, to really understand the kingdom. Let's talk about social media. Some days I recognize that I am more hungry to check my social media than I am to check my Savior. And I have been chastised by the Spirit and my heart for that, that why don't I want to commune with Christ as hungrily as I do in checking my Twitter account? Um, how does the heart, uh, you know, how do I examine the, these symptoms in my heart when my hungers are disordered? I think of, of, of two reformers. I mean, I think about Luther emphasized the theology of the cross over the theology of glory. Mm-hmm. And how Calvin said that the sum of the Christian life is self-denial. To go to the Savior is it means the cross, and it means um, reorienting my not just my ministry but my walk, which which is the the way of the cross, mm-hmm. and to understand that I serve the people of God best when I'm denying myself. Social media, and, and without meaning to condemn anybody who has a social media account of any sort, the thing we have to be careful of in an age of self-promotion mm-hmm. and in an age where you and I in our lifetime have never seen this level of self-promotion in the ministry, mm-hmm. this explicit, this bald and, and crass, we have to be really careful and think through these categories of there's many times I'm seeking the social media account or whatever for affirmation, which the Bible, the, the, the Bible tells us every member of the body of Christ needs. We're told to encourage each other. We all need a healthy amount of encouragement in the body, but in the body of Christ, that encouragement comes towards the right ends. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> But just bald affirmation and seeking affirmation, seeking glory, seeing the promotion of my name, that these are, this, this is unhealthy. 
and it can come in unhealthy doses to the point where it's it's very addictive. I mean, who does not want to be praised and loved? Mm-hmm. And and the research we're, we're we're seeing now with regard to teenagers in particular is that this is literally warping their sense of self worth and and identity. Mm-hmm. Well, adults are not above this. I personally think insecurity is something. I could speak at any men's retreat, and you could have a, a young man there at the age of 15, men into their 60s, and I would be able to find purchase with every single one of those men. And so this becomes a way of filling that, that void. Where is my sense of stability and security to be found? And so I think those are questions I would ask myself time to time, and maybe shut down an account for a while and see how I do with it, see how bad the withdrawal is. Yeah. And... I think, I think just to balance these things, again, I don't think social media is wrong. I really don't. It just has to be taken in moderation like anything else of this life and to make sure that it's not coming at the sacrifice of my seeking the cross and making sure that what I do in ministry is Christ increasing and my decreasing. And my concern is, what I see and what's been reported to me is that this, this overlapping of social media and, and ministry and especially parachurch ministry, the lines get really fuzzy. And that would concern me. I want to put two quotes before you. Um, And one is from Martin Luther. One is from Charles Bridges. And they are not meant to be in competition with each other, even though they might sound like they are. Because both men have said something to balance what you're about to hear. But here's Luther. Some pastors and preachers are lazy and no good. They do not pray, they do not study, they do not read, they do not search the scripture. This evil, shameful time is no season for being lazy, for sleeping, and snoring. Sounds like Luther. In the Christian ministry, Charles Bridges wrote in his chapter, Neglect of Retirement, and he's not speaking of social security retirement, but retreat and prayer. He says, The spirit of prayer cannot breathe freely in the atmosphere of constant and exciting employment. And then he said, in the habit of it, retreat, prayer, in the habit of it, the weakest ministrations will be efficient. In the neglect of it, the most powerful will be paralyzed. Help us now mortify sloth in the heart of the pastor and mortify self-importance, hurried, always busy self-importance in the heart of a pastor. Big task. Help us out. Well, the, the context of Charles Bridges' statement is in talking retirement, refreshment, mm-hmm. where do I seek rest, and, and especially prayer. He says, prayer is half of our ministry, but it's what gives power to the other half of our ministry. And he says something along the lines also, that nothing important happens without prayer. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is that those things have importance for the kingdom of God. And so he's, he's, he's concerned about this, that we're, we're seeking that uh, right motivation, that right power that, that will help us, righteous power, the power of God that will help us in our ministry. Mm-hmm. Luther's obviously concerned for the same. And it, it's not a fable that he spent hours in prayer. Now, we have... Um, Adolphe Manon, in his book, he talks about this and, and, and quotes those who were witnesses of the hours that, that Luther spent in prayer. I think that 
one thing we have to get straight in all this, if I perceive where you're going is that, or what you're asking, there's not, there's no antipathy, there's no competition between humility and pursuing things with excellence. Mm. And that there's, there's no uh, competition between these things that, as, as you framed it, that it's important that I give to my, my Savior my uttermost and give him my best and I, that I should be diligent and redeem the time. And it's amazing how, how time goes by in the ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just how it flits by. It's just incredible. And how the days are just filled with, with work. But what is our first work? And what gives potency? This is what I think Bridges is after. What gives potency all of our work? It has to be consecrated. I mean, it has to be biblical, for sure. We, we shouldn't see, expect to see fruit from our, our preaching ministry if it's unfaithful to the gospel, to be sure. But prayer is, is that means by which we're constantly being checked in our, in our motives and our ends. And it's, it's a way that we're constantly coming back to God saying, I'm at the end of my rope. I can do no more. Um, This is in your hands. This is your work. And laying before him all our desires, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, it's offering up our desires unto God, comma, which means good and bad, and laying before him our desires for our, our, our church's ministry and asking him to check those ones that strike us as innocent and good at this point, but maybe disastrous. So prayer serves so many functions, doesn't it? But as I seek to pursue um, my work with excellence and really try to do the best I can, there's nothing in that that suggests it has to be ego-satisfying or that uh, it has to, to prop me up. And it's because my motives are being checked. Mm-hmm. And so that I can delight in the fruit of a sermon and see people coming to repentance, seeing people being moved or helped, but in the end, if it's true humility, it doesn't matter, John, whether you preach that sermon or I preach that sermon, or our intern preach that sermon, or our associate pastor preach that sermon, and impacted our people more than we did, and to rejoice in that. And so we just rejoice in, in God's work, and just we continue to give him our best in this. I, my concern is, is that a lot of ministers, uh, reform ministers, can excuse uh, laziness and say, well, I did what I, I could. It's up to God now because of God's sovereignty. It's in his hands. So the preaching of the word is, is applied by the spirit. And somehow that gives me a pass on my preparation mm. and not being sensitive to how is this going to land? How can I make this uh, most uh, accessible for people to hear? Mm. And making sure I'm spending that time in prayer, especially if I think I've got something special in my hands. Mm-hmm. Those are the dangerous moments. Mm. Sinclair Ferguson tells that story. He says, you know the experience, brothers, when you walk in the pulpit and your hands are something special and then it crumbles before your very eyes. Mm. And sometimes those are the, the moments when God does his best work using us as weak instruments and we're reminded, where is the real power in this ministry? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bridges also said, covetousness in ministers has almost grown to a proverb. The Apostle Paul uh, would agree, because Paul spoke in Romans 7 of all kinds of covetousness that he found in himself when the command found him, do not covet. Walk us through the covetous heart in a pastor. And sometimes it's monetary, 
uh, Bridges talks about that. But sometimes the covetousness is, you know, wanting to be left alone, wanting to have a certain depth of leisure or a certain uh, carved out life of entertainment that shouldn't, shouldn't be touched by others. Walk us through the covetous heart in the pastor. I think this is a really complex question mm. because I think coveting is 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 so it's so broad. Yeah. And some have thought this this really does summarize the other ten command the other nine commandments that this is mm. that's instructive that it's last mm-hmm. and that it bleeds into all the other other things in many ways. And I think that's true. I guess my my concern would be to to try to diagnose it and where it's coming from. You know, is it coming from an obsessive care for world, the world, you know, worldly things? And I I think it's it's very helpful to our Lord says there's four times types of soil that the seed lands on, and one of them is this obsessive concern for the cares of the world and chokes out spiritual life. I, I think that's really important that that's there. I I can't help but think in terms of the ministry. Of, of how much of this comes from uh, selfishness it, when it takes a worldly direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how much of it comes from insecurity when it comes from coveting another man's ministry mm. and seeing fruitfulness come from a ministry that, that you may in your heart of hearts regard as less than your own or less faithful mm. than your own. And, or just, you just flat out are jealous. And, that betrays a, 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 a sort of insecurity in myself. And what am I really building? What am I building upon? Mm-hmm. Is it the rock? And those sorts of questions. And I think that's where I would begin is, is trying to understand where this is coming from. As soon as I had a sense that this was happening in my heart, it, it could come through a spouse and come through a friend who just raises an eyebrow. And you say something, you kind of open the window of your heart a little bit and let something out that was untoward mm-hmm. and you try to take it back, but they noticed and mm-hmm. ask a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. And that would be a time to take the opportunity to say, what am I really working for? What am I interested in? Spurgeon was very concerned about country parsons who basically lived this lavish life and gave hardly any attention to their duties on Sunday and were able to pursue golf and hunting and sporting and all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And we're getting better at everything else except for preaching mm-hmm. And it doesn't really come that in that form for, for many of us. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with getting better at other things, but there should be, fanning the flame, foremost, the gift mm-hmm. that God has given to us for the good of others. So I think it takes lots of form. I think there's lots of coveting that takes place in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And we see this in seminary all the time. You literally are putting guys side by side in their preaching, and they can't help but compare mm-hmm. themselves. And we talk about this, that just to be careful and... But I think ministers do the same. I, I, I wrote this in a review of a book once in New Horizons. That Why is it that those who are the loudest critics of big churches are the pastors of small churches? <laughs> and then I said, I'm the pastor of a small church, which was true. Mm. And I think we need to examine what's going on in our, in our heart in those critiques. Maybe it's not because they have an unbiblical ministry. Maybe it's because I have an unbiblical motive mm. in my heart. So I think this is a really big deal. And, and Bridges also says in that same section, this is more easily spotted in a minister than it is in the members of the church. Yes. And very unseemly. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it would be helpful for me each week to go to a 
journal and write, these are the things I am coveting. And to just assume that there are things and write them and put them before my eyes. In your book, With All Your Heart, you write, there is nothing in our heart that the Lord of our heart cannot make right. Now that is a comfort to a pastor with a disordered heart, but it's also a challenge that, that because of the Lord of the heart, and he can fix my heart, that I'm challenged to not excuse myself and just say, oh, I'm gonna be a disordered heart. So talk us through that, that those words that are both comforting and challenging. Well, the first comfort is that the, the words of J.C. Ryle, mm -hmm. so they have more credibility. There was a footnote, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, his words. Mm -hmm. I, think it, I think it's a comfort because it brings us back to the fact that when we preach and um, any particular passage, and we know that it's a passage that challenges our people and their sanctification, that we can, we can also come back with the other hand and remind them of the sufficiency of God's grace in Jesus Christ, that he is Savior and he's also Lord, mm -hmm. and that the same grace that raised us from the dead spiritually is the same grace that can vivify us and fan into flame that spiritual life that he's mm -hmm. begun. The hardest work has already been done. There's a few reformers that talk about that in our regeneration, mm -hmm. in our justification. In other words, the forgiveness of our sins and God looking upon us as righteous in his sight through the righteousness of his son. That's the hard part. Easy part is it getting us ready for heaven. But God's people don't see it that way at all. As a lot of members of our churches, if we ask them, do you believe you're justified by faith? They just say, yes, absolutely. If we ask them, do you think you're pure in heart? And they would say, get back to me tomorrow. Mm. Or do you feel like you're adopted? Or do you feel like you're the, the, that sin, the reigning power of sin is being subdued in your life? And mm. they would just look at you like, but that's what we have to preach. And so and that's where the comfort is, I think, of what Ryle is saying, mm -hmm. is that, that as the Lord looks upon your life and he sees that sin has, has leached into everything in your life, every aspect of your life, mm -hmm. so does his grace. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, to me, the, the great challenge uh, as, a, as a minister of the gospel is, is preaching to people where the rubber meets the road, namely sanctification. I'm going to remind them of their justification. But I think a lot of preachers, um, my brothers, that, of which I'm a member of the Redemptive Historical Preaching, is we land on justification, but we sometimes neglect sanctification. That where our people are struggling is, is dying to sin. Mm. And they don't see the progress that they think they ought to, ought to see. Mm. They see it in others, perhaps, better Christians, they would say. And we need to remind them that these ordinary means of grace and in this being uh, patient like the farmer, as scripture says, that we will see fruit in, in, in season if we continue to persevere. Mm -hmm. And we have to remind them of this. And again, it gets back to the importance of prayer, the comfort of the sacraments, and then, of course, the, the faithful preaching of God's word. And they hit at this very point. Mm -hmm. But here's my one concern with that quote. And I've, I've regretted I didn't maybe say enough in context about it. Mm -hmm. It's the person who says, who reads that quote and says, aha, any sin that I'm struggling with, he will fix it in this life. He will eradicate it. 
in this life. Their point is coming when I will never deal with this sin ever again. Mm-hmm. And that's not what Scripture promises. Mm-hmm. It's saying that you may struggle with this sin to the day you die, but His grace is sufficient to walk with you and to help you, to put it to death increasingly. And it could be this is the very thing, this is your thorn in the flesh, mm-hmm. where God says, no, I'm not taking this away. But this is necessary for, for you to become, to, to not become conceited. That's what Paul was told three times. And it shows why health and wealth gospel is not right. right. Three times he prayed. And God says, no, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. And we have to remind people, people of that, that as they struggle, this is a righteous struggle. And it may not end as soon as you want it to end. And it may not end when, even when you close your eyes. But that grace that, that is sufficient to wipe away all of your sins so that there's now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus That applies to this as well. Mm -hmm. Keep coming to him. Seek his help. Seek his grace. He loves you. He loves you still. And it's it's through this particular struggle that you're gaining credibility, that you're able to have a a fuller ministry than you ever had because you understand why other people fail. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Christians don't have that compassion until they themselves experience that. Mm -hmm. That constant failure and falling down and somebody else coming up and saying, I'm going to help you. I'm going to walk with you. And so I think, I think, his, his quote, like you say, is so comforting, but it has to be put in the context as well that you may struggle with this for a long time. This is not a quick, easy fix. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it works. And John Owen say, thank God, because if it wasn't for this one sin that you struggle with, you would not seek him in repentance. Mm-hmm. You would not seek his face. You would not turn back to him again and again. And he's using this as only he can do for his consecrated purposes mm-hmm. to um, continue to renew you in his image and to make make you what he wants you to become. Well, your answers today have reminded me how much we pastors need to receive gospel ministry, not just give it out, but desperately our heart needs to receive it. And you've given that to us today, brother. Mm-hmm. So Craig, uh, is there anything else that you think we need to be thinking about as we close this interview as it concerns the pastor's heart and how to how to make uh, some renewal and benefit from hearing this discussion today I can answer that by talk, talking to you about something that's been on my mind lately mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's the best answer to your question but I, I think it's been a great help to me, and it's something I wish I'd thought about more mm-hmm. earlier in my ministry, and it's Colossians 3, 1 through 4, where, where Paul says, set your mind on the things above. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, set your, your mind on the glory to come, mm-hmm. um, or set your mind on the inheritance that awaits you that does not perish, spoil, or fade, but on things above. And, and what he's saying is, and he says, where Christ is, see at the right hand of God, who is your life. And he's saying, your life is hidden in him. And what he's saying is there's a, there's a spiritual mindedness that we need to have that characterizes us in our daily life. And John Owen wrote a wonderful book on this. Uh, Michael Allen thinks this is John Owen's best book, actually. So I read it recently. It's marvelous, and it's orienting. And then I started looking at the New Testament especially, and the prophets. The prophets are men who had one foot in the seen world and one foot in the unseen world. In that unseen world, God gave them visions, wheels, 
for Ezekiel, you know, the, the altar and the, the burning coal for Isaiah. And their job was to bring a word from that unseen world into the seen world, to put into perspective this world in light of the world that's more real. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. John the Baptist clearly understood this. What does a man have that he has not received from above? Prodigal son, first thing out of his mouth to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. This, this, this present sense that heaven is not just about the life to come, it's about the world above right now. How does this impact my ministry and to put all my ministry in the context? And what am I here for anyway? It is to prepare these people for death, prepare them for what's to come. But I can do that now in trying to inculcate this fact that every day I wake up as a soldier of light in battling against this present darkness, as, as Paul says, there's this supernatural warfare that's taking place that divides the universe right down to half, as Paul Meniere says. Mm. And this mindfulness is what helps me in my ministry. It helps to check. Am I, am I building something that's part of this world that will pass away? Mm. Or am I really investing and encourage my people to invest in the world that will not pass away? That, that's things unseen. Those are the mm-hmm. things that will last. That's the kingdom mm-hmm. of which we're a part of. And that's, and that's what we want to press towards. That's where my, my heart finds its real joy. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think I can do my best good. Mm-hmm. And I'm just frustrated. <laughs> hit my 60s. I'm finally at this like, it's like a lightning bolt mm-hmm. that this has hit me and how to orient my ministry. And I would encourage our brothers in the ministry and our brothers and sisters in Christ to, to really think upon these things and, and to just see your life in perspective as you should. And the fact that you have the Lord of Lords reigning in heaven Right now, you have full access to him in prayer, mm-hmm. and he is directing all things for your good. Mm-hmm. But he also is the one to which you're 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 building you're you're heading towards. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where your journey ends is with mm-hmm. him, and only those things that were done in his name and for his name, those are the things will last. That should very much control what I do every single day mm-hmm. and what I'm living for. Craig, thank you so much for your time and for you're this welcome. discussion. Appreciate you very much and your ministry. God bless you. On behalf of the Committee on Ministerial Care, thank you for joining us. Our host today was John Hartley, an OPC minister at Apple Valley Presbyterian Church in Nina, Wisconsin. His guest was Craig Troxell, an OPC minister who currently serves on the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. For other resources designed to support and encourage pastors, please visit our website at www.opccmc.org. May God bless you in your ministry.